Welcome into episode 13 of the House of L podcast. I am your dutiful host, Lawrence Holmes, here with you. I'm excited for this week's episode as a person who, when I started the podcast, I was like, this is someone that I want to talk to. This is someone that I want to have on the show, and it gives me the opportunity to compare notes and talk across the aisle and all of that good stuff. This week's guest is Sarah Spain, and we'll get to the conversation with Sarah coming up in a little bit. We do have some emails that I'll go through at the end of the episode, and I like that people are emailing the podcast, houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. If you have questions, I'll do my best to try and answer them. For the most part, I would like to keep them to the pod. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who want to ask me questions about score politics, for example, and I'm not interested in answering them on my podcast. I'll I'll take a couple, but I really don't want to do that. That's not what this was intended to do as far as what this podcast is all about, and I don't plan on that being a central a central post of this this podcast, but I do appreciate the interest. It's just I have there's not a lot of good that can happen for me talking about some of this stuff. And I would hope that you would understand that, but some people don't for some reason. It's also really interesting that the podcasts that do the best are the ones that some people would consider the most salacious. Like, oh, well, Jason was on. He had things to say. So... I, I thought that the great thing about the episode with Jason was that how heartfelt it was, how emotional it was, but whatever. I'm just doing whatever. Anyway, I want to get to this, this interview because I think it's really good. It took us a while to figure out whether or not we could actually make it happen because ESPN doesn't ordinarily let their people out all that often to do stuff. So I've Sarah and I have actually been working, trying to make this happen for about six weeks now. Cause she's got a crazy schedule. I have a crazy schedule. She had to get approval from ESPN. Uh, I'm, I'm recording the pod at the score. So I had to get permission from Mitch to have Sarah in the building, you know, all that sort of stuff, but we got it done. And I'm really happy that we did. I, in this pod, in this week's pod, you'll hear me talk about the first time that I met Sarah. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have her on the podcast is how much she's grown since my initial meeting with her. Full disclosure, a couple years ago, I had Sarah come speak to my class at DePaul. I was so impressed with what she had become and what she was doing that I wanted her to tell her story to, to my class. I thought that it would be valuable for the students at DePaul to hear that you don't have to go the traditional route to find yourself in this business. Sarah has proven herself, I think, as a really good journalist, but her way into the business was unorthodox. And I think that that 
more people that want to do this for a living should understand that there are multiple avenues to getting into this business. And then it's a matter of what what are you going to do once you get an opportunity, once the door is opened up for you with that opportunity. And I think Sarah is a great example of taking an opportunity at multiple junctures in her career and maximizing it. And I think that her ascension as one of ESPN's most important opinion people is a testament to her understanding how to play the game, when to play the game, and becoming a really important voice for journalism in our business. I think that she's a good check and balance on a medium that is very male. I think it's important, whether it's someone like her or Michelle Beadle or my friend Kristen Balboni over at Stadium, that I'm glad that the industry at least seemingly is opening up to having more women involved in it. Hopefully that's something where we'll see more minorities involved in it as well. So Sarah and I sat down and had a great talk. I think that you're really going to like it. I know I did. Hopefully she did. And that's this week's guest. ESPN's own Sarah Spain. You see her around the horn, the Dan Levitard show, her podcast, which is great. That's what she said. That is the name of her podcast and all sorts of other stuff that she's done. The trifecta as well. Me and Sarah kicked it here in the studio. I was thinking about, obviously, today, since you were coming in, but I was thinking about you specifically because I was watching the history of comedy on CNN, and they had done the episode with uh, with all of the, the group stuff and the groundlings, and I was like, I can talk with Sarah about this. <laughs> I, I haven't was, seen that one yet. It's really good. I've seen a bunch of them. I have to, I have to catch that one. They they didn't have my boys, the state, in there, and that was my jam. Like back I'm going to dip my balls in it. Absolutely, <laughs> I, two hundred and forty dollars of pudding. <laughs> I, I actually just met Thomas Lennon last oh, nice. week, and he was he couldn't have been nicer. And I was just sitting there going, "There's so much I want to ask yeah. you." So hopefully at some point he'll be on the podcast. But that was something that you started out in in, in doing. Do you still want to be that person, whether it's improv or doing stand-up or anything like that? I mean, deep down, I love it, and that's why on my podcast, I always have comedians and stand-ups and SNL cast members and whoever I can get my hands on that's in the comedy scene because there's a there's a side of me that really still wishes that I was doing that. But I also am aware that it's a little... It's not, it's not too late, but it's a little late for me to suddenly make a, a move into a different into a completely different industry and my success in this one has allowed me to do some little things throughout you know whether it's the fantasy football marathon last year which was basically 19 hours of costumed improv idiocy <laughs> or you know rapping on levitard show or rapping on spain and prim um finding ways to get creative and performative on on around the horn on the halloween episode on the hq halloween episode doing it all in full accent and costume for the whole show i found ways to be the performer that i always wanted to be in this job but i also think that my i'm self-aware enough to realize that i'm not as inherently built for that as other people are who have found success in it why not um I think I'm quite funny, but within certain contexts, I don't know that I'm naturally 
my brain doesn't naturally work in the way that a, a comedian does. But on the other hand, if I trained for it, that's what I was going to say. Like, I was very successful at improv. I never trained for comedy writing or stand up, which I would still would think would be amazing. Um, so maybe I'm selling myself short, and if I actually trained for it, I would be. But um, part of what I love about this job now is that I get to combine the performative and comedic stuff when I want to with feeling like I'm making a difference as well. And there are comedians that do that. I mean, you can look at shows like Amy Schumer's you know, uh, uh, show that have sketches about rape in the military or guns or sexist sexism like all this stuff it's so funny because that was one of the clips that they use they use like that specific clip from the show where she's playing the the video video game game. yeah yeah and you can make a difference and you can be influential and you can speak out on issues using comedy and there's parts of that that i would like to do in sport even where it's taking a satirical approach to an issue in sports so that people digest it better because they're learning and being educated on it but they're receiving it in a package that's more interesting than a straight like tom rinaldi feature that's well-researched and reported, but maybe someone's not going to watch it because they think it's too serious. And so I want to get to the people that are not going to watch or listen unless it's got that edge to it. So I think I'm able to combine it in ways that is still validating. Although, I mean, my I just had a full Saturday Night Live-themed birthday party, so I think I that says enough about how much I really still dream of like having that life. Who was your favorite actor on that show? Eddie Murphy. Why? I don't know if it was just it hit at the right age. My parents let me watch Saturday Night Live at an age that was probably inappropriate, um, <laughs> to be fair. To be fair, I was staying up late with them when I shouldn't have been. But um, So then I got into uh, Coming to America and Eddie Murphy Delirious, which is still the greatest stand-up of all time. And then Best of Eddie Murphy SNL, there was a VHS that you could rent at the, mo- at the movie store. And so that was it. It was Buckwheat and Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood and James Brown's Celebrity Hot Tub. And I would walk around the house doing the, hi, I'm Velvet Jones. Do you want to be a hoe? You can work from the comforts of your own bedroom. Like, I would pick the most inappropriate ones to repeat repeatedly all the time. Um, And I don't know. I just think Eddie Murphy changed that, saved that show. If you ever read the great book about SNL that James Andrew Miller um, oral history of SNL. He saved the show. It was going to be gone. Um, and there's so many incredibly talented people, but Eddie Murphy's just my favorite comedian of all time, so he get, he get me there. Do you want him to pick the microphone back up, or are yes. you like, you do? Because I know there are some Eddie These Murphy kids fans. movies are not for me. I don't want to watch... I don't even know. I don't even know. I mean, other than Nutty Professor, I don't even know the names of the ones he's doing. I know he's in Shrek. Shrek, yeah. But he's done some other. Like, no, I want old Eddie Murphy to come back. So leather jacket, yes. no shirt on, Eddie yes. Murphy. Like Dirty Murphy. You, okay, yes, that's what I want. So you're not afraid that if he dips his toe back in, it might not be a great experience. Or has... actually, that's a really great point because that's kind of what happened with Chappelle's first stand-up when he came back. He was gone for a while, and the world evolved, and he didn't. And it was tough at times to watch. And then when he let out those two, the equanimity of whatever and the bird, you know, those two that he just did. The first one I thought had showed a little bit of growth from him and an understanding and a reaction to the previous set that had been kind of criticized. And the second one was him trying to address a bunch of Me Too stuff that he was just not educated enough on. And was on the wrong side of and basically evolved into him calling women weak for not being able to handle it. It felt like he was trying to work through it well, in the set. Yes. And it didn't work for the room. 
there was a lot of uncomfortable people in that room. And then as a viewer, to me, and it wasn't he's pushing it and he's going to the edge. It wasn't that. It was he is has not fully thought these things out, and he's defensive and antiquated in his opinions on it. So you're right. There, There's a, absolutely a part of me that might not be able to find and place Eddie Murphy in today's world. But I would like to think he's such a talented comedian that he would be able to still make us laugh. But, I mean, the rules are different. And I don't think that's a bad thing. What drew you to improv overall? Um, you know, when I was when I moved to L.A. right after college, I came back to Chicago for a couple months to save money. And then I moved to L.A. wanting to do comedy or, like, TV hosting. Like, my dream jobs were SNL and, like, hosting Talk Soup back when it was, like, mm. Greg Kinnear days, right? Um, and, uh, and I ended up doing a TV hosting boot camp, which was like just a weekend long where you learn intros, outros, opens, camera presence. It was this woman, Marky, I'm going to forget her last name, but she's legitimately been on a bunch of TV shows now. They bring her in as like the coach. consultant. Okay. Yeah. So she's known around Hollywood. It was, it was when I was living in LA and I didn't know, she was like, what are you guys experts in? Everybody was like interior design or they were, it was like right before the HGTV boom. It was right around the beginning of that. So everybody was an expert in that. And I was like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm not an expert in pop culture Hollywood stuff because I didn't really want to do E, but I'm not an expert in anything that would be for TV. Like, I'm not going to say literature. I was an English major, right? (laughs) So I did a Chicago Bears show. I was like, oh, I'm sports, you know, like I'll just use this for this exercise we're doing she said oh you want to be a sports host I said oh no there's there's no women in sports and they don't get to be funny and she was like well maybe you could be I was like uh and then in that boot camp she suggested everyone do improv she was like it'll help you with hosting you'll be like quick on the fly you'll have you know great witty responses you'll be able to work with any partner and so I went to do the improv stuff right around the same time as I thought to myself, maybe I dip my toe in the sports waters and see if I can combine my love of comedy with my love of sports and not try to follow a path that I already see. Because there were no Michelle Beatles. There was no Katie Nolan. There was no – it was a very serious anchor or it was a very bubbly sideline reporter that got two minutes and didn't get to have a personality. And I didn't see myself in anybody. Um, and that whole, if you can see it, you can be a thing is absolutely true. I didn't feel like I couldn't do sports. It just literally never occurred to me. I spent my life watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And And loving Michael Jordan. And there wasn't a single woman that I saw on TV talking about it or covered it or talked on the radio about it, or it just wasn't. I'm, I'm sure that back then there were probably a handful of women writing, but when I was that age, I wasn't checking bylines. That was I was never into the media. I was into the sports. Mm. So the media never mm. occurred to me. So so you're not looking at like a, a Tony Janetti story and being right. like, oh, I can be Tony Janetti. Totally. Or- never was my interest because I didn't. It didn't even occur to me that that was. A, first of all, my parents are not into sports, so they weren't like talking to me about it. We weren't talking about the Bulls games and who they were playing next and go read this story and whatever else. I was just consuming the parts of it that I liked. And so it wasn't until later when I took a a class at UCLA Extension that was for, you know, non-attendees in TV sports reporting. That was my first taste of like, oh, wait, this is my wheelhouse. I've been an athlete my whole life all through college. I've been a fan my whole life. And it was going to take monumental amount of work to become a person who works in that business as opposed to someone who casually watches because – I was, I mean, I had to learn every sport that I didn't watch. And I had to learn the sports that I did watch in a way that I hadn't watched them before. 
it wasn't just about sitting and having a beer and watching a football game. It was what are the rules and what are the expectations from each team and at each moment and decision and strategy and everything. Um, but once I went to that class, I was like, I should have been doing this all along. How would you recommend that someone take that jump? Because it's, honestly, it's one of the hardest things that I have to do with my students is to teach them how to watch a game. So how do you think you watched games differently yeah. after that point? Well, I had the best job for that. It was perfect because one of the people who came to speak at the UCLA class was this guy, Rick Jaffe. He was one of the higher-ups at Fox Sports. So I he everyone would put their email on the board. I messaged Rich, Rich Eisen's wife, went over to their house and had wine and had her give me suggestions because she worked in the biz, Susie Schuster. Uh, you know, I messaged the guy who was calling the Kings games to ask about his job. Messaged Rick Jaffe. I said, can I please take you to lunch? I want to talk to you about, like, getting into the business. And he had said we could all come and see a live taping of a show if we wanted. So went, saw the show, took him to lunch, and there was a nightly highlight show uh, called The Final Score. And it ran on East Coast, Colorado, West Coast every night. And it was a half hour. It was Andrew Siciliano was one of the hosts, Danielle Sargent. There was a handful of different hosts. And I became a, a PA. That was my first job in sports. I had done a job here at Intersport, actually. I remember that. Um, as, like, an intern. Uh, that was just a random connection that I had through Cornell. I didn't mm. want to work in sports. It was just that the woman knew I was an athlete and was like, hey, you could work here while you're saving money to move. Um, so this was my first intentional job in sports. And I was logging games. So I would get in around 1 o'clock and I would log usually like a three o'clock game that was seven o'clock or a four o'clock game that was seven o'clock in New York, baseball or whatever it was. And I would have to sit and write down the game as it went and then later type and then pick the highlights and write what the anchor person would say. So they would say, all right, you got 30 seconds for this Bulls Timberwolves. So I would be watching the game and I would be writing down not every play, not if it was a steal that wasn't miraculous. It was a great play, every score, every whatever. And so then you have to learn exactly what happened. In fact, it's embarrassing to admit, but when I started logging football, I would write punt for everything, not not kickoff. I would always call it a punt. I just was like, okay, it's going back to the other team. It's a punt, even when it was a kickoff. And I didn't know the difference. I had, you know, my parents didn't watch football. I didn't start watching football until I was midway through high school. And then I'm just sitting by myself watching the game kind of halfway while I'm reading or doing whatever else, I'm not interacting with everyone about what's going on in the game. So it wasn't until later in life that I was like, I can choose these things to spend my time doing and going to. So the sports I played and then the the bowls and stuff, I was all into. It wasn't until later that I was like, oh, I can choose to go to a baseball game or a football game or watch this. Um, and so I had a lot to learn. And the logging was huge. NASCAR, golf, hockey, every sport. Not only do you have to watch it, but you have to sit and know what you're writing. What was that? Oh, well, that was that was offsides. That was, you know, whatever kind of penalty. That was an eagle right. on 16 exactly. or whatever it was. Yeah, or NASCAR. That <laughs> one didn't have to do a lot. It was crashes and winners. <laughs> but I at least figured out what drafting was, kind of. Um, but, yeah, and that's that's terrifying, especially as a woman, because – there are people who are in that room that have been watching in a different way their whole lives. And um, you can let it just tell you that you're not going to make it or you can say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to learn this and I'm going to turn it into a job instead of just being a fan. I remember when I first met you. I don't know if you remember. Uh, it was probably more memorable for me than for you. We were at a Charles Tillman flag football yes. <laughs> game and you were squiring an intern. 
and you said, you know, you I had introduced myself and you were like, oh, you know, I know you and I, I like what you do. And I was saying how, you know, the intern should listen to you and should listen mm-hmm. to Bruce. because Bruce was over there and J.D. at the time. And I remembered you being. I remembered like hearing your voice and like, man, she's got a great voice for radio. <laughs> and, I, and I felt that you were still like a little unsure, oh, I'm sure of yourself. Was. Yeah, yeah. And I, I couldn't understand why because I'm like, here she is. She's got this big voice. Like yeah. this is going to work out for yeah. her, but she seems like unsure well, about where first, she is. That was my first on-camera job. That was Mouthpiece Sports, which I moved back to Chicago for. It was like a startup website. I was writing, I was working on camera, I was in the the locker rooms doing beat reporter type stuff for the Blackhawks and the Cubs and going to events like that. And that job I actually, when I interviewed for, told them I was going to bring my improv into. And that's a good example, that Peanut Tillman one, instead of doing an interview, hey, what's the cause, how nice does it feel that your teammates came out to support you, that kind of thing. I instead mic'd him up, mic'd myself up, said I was uh, trying out to be the wide receiver for the Bears. Because at that point, Devin Hester, sadly enough, was their number one. And they didn't have, like, a real good depth chart idea yet of who was going to be their number two receiver. So I had him throw me passes and basically talk smack about how bad I was. And that was the piece. And that was more interesting to me that people would want to watch than another boring interview. Same thing with the Cubs. I would go in and after Zambrano destroyed the clubhouse Gatorade cooler, I did a whole story about how the, the cooler went on the DL and they weren't sure when the hydration would be back. <laughs> and I interviewed all the players about losing a guy that's so you know important to their everyday success. So stuff like that. And that was me bringing my background in, of comedy in. And also that job was great because it wasn't about knowing the nitty-gritty and being able to talk about what it means when this player is out for a week or this hockey guy's got a lower body injury. What does this mean for the line changes? I wouldn't have known that then. I just started. Um, so I was bringing the comedy to the job I was doing, which was about bringing out player personalities and telling stories. And over time, my knowledge grew, my confidence grew, and the different roles I've had have meant that I've needed to have different skill sets. From a journalistic standpoint, and I'm not saying this because you're sitting in front of me, the growth that you've shown is unbelievable. Like from, from that moment to you being a Peabody Award winner because of some of the stuff that you're doing. But I, I'd love to know how was there a moment where it clicked and you're like, I've got this. Like I've I found my lane on how I can be impactful in what I do. Well, there's two of them. So the 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 feeling comfortable thing actually I mean, it, it's I've I've managed to understand my limitations in in a lot of places so that I don't feel uncomfortable because I don't overstep, right? If I don't know something, I'm more likely to admit it, even though as a woman that's tougher, right? As a guy, you can get stuff wrong all the time, and people give you the benefit of the doubt as soon as you mess up as well. Oh, you shouldn't have your job, but um, working with Dan Levitard has really helped me. He's one of my mentors, and if you listen to his show, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He's incredibly knowledgeable, but midway through a show, somehow randomly, the New York Nets will come up, and he'll be like, does anyone in here know the coach of the Nets? Anyone. And he'll reveal that you can't know everything. Even someone like him who's so knowledgeable, who's going to pull some name from 1990s baseball that I've never even heard of and give me a half hour on it or tell me great social issue commentary, whatever it is, he can't know everything, and that's the pressure of this job, right, is that 
Every day there's a new piece of news. Every day there's a new player you need to know. And people expect you to also know about players from the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. So his freedom in being able to say, I don't know everything at his position made me feel more free to say, I'm not doing every role at the company. I don't need to be as up to football as Adam Schefter and as knowledgeable about basketball as Jalen Rose and whatever else. I just need to do my stuff well, and I need to be good at what I do for why people want to want to come to my radio show, read my stories, listen to my podcast, whatever it is. Um, and then I think also as far as being impactful, I think most women in this industry have a pivot point, and I call it the pivot where you have to play the game for long enough that you can then change it. You need to... Be the person that guys want to grab a beer with and talk smack with and have fun with and feel like you're part of the group. And then at some point you get the agency and the voice where you can say, I'm going to alienate some people who no longer want to grab a beer with me because I'm going to say things that need to be said about how we cover stuff, how we treat women, how we talk about women athletes, how we interact with people in the workplace. And that's going to help change it for other people. And it is going to be impactful, even if it doesn't serve me in terms of just straight popularity. And some women never make that pivot. Some would rather continue to be as popular and successful as they can, even in the face of continuing or ignoring issues that are around them. Um, For me, it was only a couple years into working at even ESPN 1000 that I was like, instead of just laughing when there's a joke that I think shouldn't be told, I'm going to turn my mic on and say something. What was the hardest part of the pivot? Um... When you're still trying to make it, you don't like to know that people are disliking what you're doing. And being a spoil sport has never been my thing. I have a great sense of humor. I'm usually the one pushing the envelope. But You're also pretty good at making fun of yourself. Yeah. Um, so it's not that I'm a spoil sport or I'm a wet blanket. And that that frustrates me now even when people still think that I, oh, I wish you had a sense. I'm like, you have no idea. I just also know where I want to draw a line because I, I think it matters, right? And so that sucked um, because I was still, I mean, I felt for me at the time, I was like, I can't believe I'm on the radio for ESPN. This is amazing. But I was an update anchor. I didn't have my own show. I was writing for ESPNW. Um, and I had, this was before Around the Horn. This was before SportsCenter. This was before having my own show. And so I felt like I had made it, but I hadn't. I still had a lot of a ways to go. And so to be in that position and be deciding that you're okay with some people turning off to you because they don't like that you're making them face realities. Um, that was tough to do. But I also felt like from for who I am and who I've always been in my life, it would not have worked to be disingenuous about stuff that matters to me. I listened to your podcast, That's What She Said, is the name of the podcast. The episode you did with other women in the business, it was striking, a lot of this stuff. Now, I knew known some of the stories because I had worked with some of the women that you had on the show. Rebecca Harlow and I right. used to do Sports Sunday together, so it's always great to hear her point of view on things, especially the like when she was talking about the, the dressing room and the makeup room. It's really fascinating, and I've learned that now, like working in TV, especially since I don't have any hair anymore. <laughs> like, I can be done in three minutes. Yeah. Meanwhile, whether it's Rebecca or Laura Britt, who I used to work with, they're getting there an hour right. before. And I'm like, why? And they're like, oh, because if they don't look. Yeah. But that sucks, too, because I don't want someone not to hire me because then they're like, oh, we got to get hair and makeup or because it's going to take longer. Or when you come in, we need to give X amount of time. That's BS. But also, I can't go on the air and just throw on a T-shirt 
and do no makeup because that's we are held to different uh, standards and expectations. In fact, I already push back on the BS enough by just deciding that there's an X amount of time in my life that I want to spend to what I look like. And I'm going to do it because of my job and also just some natural human desire to not look bad, right? Everybody wants to look their best. But I refuse to be so obsessed with it that I don't devote that time to reading or hanging out with my friends and family. Or sleeping. Or doing the prep for my job that I need. If I'm at the nail salon and getting a facial and getting a wax and getting things plucked and getting things dyed and getting things Botox and the amount of time you could spend trying to chase this ideal when you should be just prepping for the job is frustrating. And so I hope to never lose my job because I don't look good enough. But I also refuse to, like, waste my life spending all of my time trying to look like someone that I'm not going to ever look like anyway. How do you handle criticism of your looks? It was a lot harder when I started because I was insecure about them and because there was – you grow a thick skin over time. So when you first I, – I was at Mouthpiece Sports and there would be comments on, like, a video, like, are you fat or do you just look pre- – are you pregnant or do you just look fat or – that shirt looks awful on you or this is a bad choice or whatever. And I still get those messages all the time. It's just I'm so used to them by now that I don't care. You know, every once in a while someone says something that I'm like, oh, that's that hurt my feelings. But what are you going to do? Like what kind of person is messaging somebody to say you look fat or some guy just messaged me and he was like, no offense, but who picks your outfits for TV? And then I looked, and the only other time he had messaged me was exactly like a year and a half before, and he just wrote, interesting outfit today. So I'm like, what kind of person is that their way of interacting with a complete stranger? And how were they raised, and how do they feel about themselves, right? If you feel good about yourself, all you want to do is lift other people up, right? If you feel bad about yourself, you want to take other people down to make you feel better. So anybody who's coming at me with that is probably pretty dissatisfied. And then I feel bad for them. I'm not angry with them. I feel sad that that's what they think about life. Also, you get one body, you get one face, you get one set of genes. And if you spend your whole life being sad about what you could have had instead, you're not, it's not going to change. I'm not going to look like, I don't know. Who's great? Blake Lively's pretty hot, although she got a nose job, so I guess I could get a nose job and that would get me one step closer. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, at some point in your life, you decide, of course you care what you look like, you're gonna do your best, but if you spend all your time wishing you look differently, you're just wasting your time. You're ne- it's not gonna change. Does it ever bother the people around you? Like, how much do you yeah. let them? Oh my well, God, my friends and family are like, how do you do your job? Yeah. Like, we could not take this. And I always say it's about the slow growing of thick skin. Yeah, if tomorrow, all of a sudden, your entire social media timeline was filled with people telling that you that you're fat and ugly and you sound like a dude or whatever else, you would be pretty upset. But if it started with a small amount of people when you were on a tiny website, and then you got on local radio, and then you got on national radio, and then you got on TV, by the time you get there, it's not that you want people to be mean to you, but you just, you go, cool, great, mute, block, move on. Yeah, that's... It- and also, I'm not going to let those people live in my head. What, what... Does it serve me to say, you, stranger, who I would never talk to in person, and if I was, you would never say this, I'm going to let you make me feel bad? I'm going to let my day be changed by you saying I look fat? I feel like some of those people, if they were to ever see you in person, 
Like their approach would be. Yeah, they are super nice. <laughs> I have had almost zero people approach me in public. I have had one person who is actually the sibling of someone at the radio station I used to work for be like, yeah, you know, I thought you really sucked at first, but you're getting better. I'm like, cool, thank you. That is literally the meanest thing anyone <laughs> said to me in person. Um, and then, uh, And then one fan of a website that I do not like. Uh, in person saw me and, and made some comment about how I suck. And other than that, it's just that doesn't happen because you don't interact with people in person that way for the most part, right? Unless you're in a drunk bar fight or it's someone that you know that you have a beef with. You don't tell a stranger in person that you hate them or they're ugly or you don't like their work. Because there could be consequences Yes. to doing that. And, and also because there's actual scientific research that backs up that when you interact with someone in pub in person you have psychosomatic responses to what they show you what their eyes are telling you what their face is doing the way their the way their eyebrows are moving the way their voice changes you will understand physically your body understands physically how you're affecting someone else it doesn't happen online because you can't see them you can't hear them you don't know anything about them and so our bodies actually for the most part seek out points of Connection. Connection. Seek out ways to make good on a conversation with someone, not ways to make it worse. Because you're watching them react to what you're saying, and if you're hurting their feelings or if you're making them sad or if you're making them angry, we don't have any connection points online, so we just blow past all the stop signs we would be getting, and we're awful to people. How do you handle social media at this point? Because there are times where I'm just like, I, I've completely pretty much divorced from Facebook. <laughs> Yeah. Like other than I mean, we all should no ba based on what we know about it. Yeah. Now, but it's tough. It's a it's a great connector for friends and, and, and fans yeah. and, and everything else. But I've I've for the most part, I will comment on friends and family's posts and I'll post like the podcast or right. when the next show is coming up. But that's pretty much it. What about like Twitter and Instagram and Instagram? I'm I'm probably more personal than anywhere right. on Instagram. Like, there's pictures of me and Mel. There's, you yeah. know, pictures of my nieces and nephews, like that sort of thing. Pictures of my mom. Twitter, I, I've gotten to the point now where I kind of like to play around now on Twitter where it's like, you know, I'll comment on your stuff and right. it'll be a gif. You know, right. like that, that, that's. Oh, you're a GIF guy, huh? I love it. I'm, I'm a GIF, I'm a GIF gal. Well, okay. No, I love GIFs, GIFs. And I know <laughs> that the guy who created them says it's GIF, but I don't care because we all decided it was GIF long ago and we should have stuck with it. GIF. It's like Alice and Alexei Ramirez. Yeah, but we don't say it's like La Seer. Like... We say laser. Okay, I'm saying we never started saying La Seer. <laughs> We started saying GIF. It's a made-up word. It's a, it's a thing that we all decided was GIF, and so we shouldn't change it to GIF. Just like White Sox. Like, White Sox with the next is both singular and plural because it's a made-up word. Right. So you can say such and such was a White Sox or... A White Sox. No, don't say a White Sox. <laughs> it's got to be a White Sox or else Hawk Harris is going to get really mad, I, I think. But I've, I've become more personal probably on Instagram. Twitter, I, I just kind of, I use it, but there are times where I'm like, that's enough. Like, the, I've, right. the, you, the uninstall the app that. thing. Right, I'm getting better at stepping away. I go through times where I'm really good about it, and I and I step away. And then um, I end up using a lot. Like, I have to be careful because we have company guidelines that are ever-changing, that are hard to truly understand. I don't blame them for their attempts 
to corral us and and rein in what we discuss. I don't blame me and anybody else for feeling like we have things that we want to say. It's a complicated time for that. Um, and so sometimes I do need to step away because I get too wrapped up in it. I find the biggest problem I have is when I'm traveling. So in May and June, I had 21 flights. And <laughs> yeah. And so I'm in a hotel room or I'm sitting at the airport or I'm on a flight or I'm whatever. I, I don't have a choice to interact with friends and family. Yes, I do bring books or listen to podcasts. But for that 20 minutes when you're waiting, you don't pull the book out. Or when you're sitting in bed watching TV in a hotel, you don't have a DVR to change what you want to watch. You're, you're, you know, I mean, that's when I get stuck where I'm like using it too much because I don't really have anything else to do. And I'm sitting, I'm just interacting with people. Um, when I'm home and having fun and I have a life, I don't get drawn into it as often. Um, but it's a choice. And, and you know, uh, I think it can be a super useful tool. And I think it can be a great way to point out beliefs and opinions that are really wrong and speak back to them. And are you going to change that person? Probably not. But there's probably a lot, of, a lot of other people watching and listening and paying attention that are thinking a little differently because of the way you present things and the way you talk about them. And um, and then there's always people like, oh, don't feed the trolls. Why do you give them attention? And I'm like, I'm not going to digest it all day long and never clap back. Sometimes it's for fun. Sometimes they set themselves up for a giant burn and I want to I want to feel the satisfaction of that sometimes I want to point out that this is crap that we still have to deal with in 2018 um sometimes I want I, I see the same thing over and over and I pick one of them and I'll say I'll respond to it because I want people to see this point of view that's unfortunately still way too common so I really pick my battles most people have no idea how many people I just mute and block and never they never see they never know writ wrote me um and then I pick the ones I want to engage with Recently, you kind of went through a thing with Britt McHenry on Twitter. When it's someone that you worked with, I don't know if you guys were ever even around each other, but that seems like, and, and I've had a couple of these too, where it's like, really? Like, we're going to do well, so this? I didn't want to do that, and I shouldn't have. And I, I've, I have never worked with her. I don't think I've ever spoken to her. I think we were in one big event classroom thing and I might have introduced myself and that's it but I don't remember ever interacting with her she was attacking or degrading ESPNW as a less than platform and that she, if she she would never would have written for it because she wanted to be on par with the guys completely misunderstanding how the platform works and the website and what it stands for and what it represents so my response to her was not a personal shot it was about th the website and in defense of the website I shouldn't have even engaged because not everybody interacts the same way on Twitter. And the way it ended up was not what I would have wanted or how I would want to carry myself. Even if I was provoked into being a person that I don't want to be, I still shouldn't be that way. Um, but if you see me, I don't I don't attack people. I don't take cheap shots. When, when, when someone's in my timeline and insults me, I don't go look at their avatar and find something to insult about them. I think that's crappy. That's doing the exact same thing they do. And I see really smart and successful people doing that right they'll they'll say oh you would know with all your chins and i'm like what are you doing like I, I don't i don't do that to people that's not how i operate in life or online you could be really mean to me and i'm going to make fun of your grammar or your spelling or i'm going to make fun of your terrible antiquated ideas but i'm not going to say you're fat or ugly or whatever you live in your mom's basement i mean it's stupid so um yeah i mean something like that is end of a Mid midway through all those trips too, where I just get stuck on there, and I'm on it too much. No, I I get it. I I looked at my battery usage the other day, and 
it was telling me like how much time I spent on Twitter. I was like, oh, yeah, that is. Well, do you watch Hard Knocks? I do. Okay, did you see the guy that was showing them all the different uh, ways to save money? Massive, yeah. yeah. And so at the end of the episode, in like the little tidbit, he's telling them, if you spend 10% of your day on Instagram, you've essentially now given, you know. Was it a month? A month, yeah. A month of your year away. Yeah, whatever the calculus was. I hate math. But, uh, but and then you're like, oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's probably too much time. Yeah, I don't like that. It's very, very. Can we? Let's talk about. We've been getting serious. Let, let's go back to something fun. I'm a fan of the Levitard show too. Yeah. I love when you pop up on there. I love when Mina pops up on there. It seems like a great time. Is it as fun as it looks? Yes. It's super fun. They've created the. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Massive playpen full of different personalities and they've found ways to pull out of each of the people in there their own special, unique weirdness. And they embrace the weirdness. Um, when I first went to do it, uh, I had not been listening to the show that often. So I got there and I, I didn't, I'm like, what's the club? What's happening, right? Um, and I was expecting and hoping for a rundown because there's always that fear of what if they start talking about a topic I don't know anything about. And they don't use rundowns. They don't use rundowns. They'll ask you if you have stuff you want to talk about, and he'll try to bring it up during the show so that you can chat about whatever topic you're interested in. But you just got to go with the flow on anything, any topic that comes up. And that might be something that's in the news that day, and it might be 90s baseball, and it might be do you stand or sit when you're wiping? That's an actual topic. I remember that. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> so that's my kind of show because that's the improv kicking in. That's you can play with anything. Um, so I love being down there. And I and it is – it is. I don't know if you read the uh, Slate article about I did. it that um, was actually written by Moe's from The Office, who also created Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine Nine. I didn't and, know it was. I didn't know it was that yeah. was the same person. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I talked to him for a full hour for that interview for that story, and then later found out it was him. And he, no, he just came on my podcast a couple weeks ago. He's awesome. But wow, yeah, Michael Schur. He created Brooklyn Nine Nine, The Good Place. Uh, Parks and Rec, he's Moe's from The Office. He wrote an episode of Black Mirror. He's all over the place. But he, and he's, and he's Ken Tremendous on Twitter. He was one of the people who started Fire Joe Morgan. Oh, man. And he wrote for The Office and Saturday Night Live. And I am learning a lot today. Yeah, but anyway, he just loves the Levitard show so much that he wrote that story about it. Well, I, I think that they're on to something. And I know that you know, people sometimes bristle with the concept of corporate culture especially at ESPN. There are a lot of people who want ESPN to fail, which I think is a little weird. Um, Super weird because they still watch it all the time. All the time. And if ESPN were to fail, it would be real bad news for every other sports outlet. Yeah. So you don't want sports to be a big thing. You don't want good coverage. It's a strange, it's a really really strange phenomenon that, and and when you started to see layoffs happening at ESPN, one of my reactions was this is bad. Like this is bad for the entire industry. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the layoffs at Fox, which were almost as abundant, yeah. were covered no. nearly the same way. But that's another story for a, a, another day. What 
I always find fascinating about the Levitard show is here's a show that it's is his own thing. There's a freedom. And how do you duplicate allowing people to be free? Like, are you allowed on your show to be that free? I think it's complicated. I think part of the magic there is that Dan makes it feel and look so easy that when other people try to do it, it crashes and burns because it's not easy to be free-flowing and funny and clever, and you need those apparatus that they have, right? You need Mike to be this incredible producer that always knows when to bring back a, a piece of sound or a commentary. You need um, Stu Gatz to play the foil. I've done a bunch of radio shows where early on, or even if it's just with a co-host or a fill-in, the idea is, oh, let's fly by the seat of our pants. Mm-hmm. We don't like rundowns. And then it's not a good listen because they've got something that they've had for years, plus decade plus, and they've got all the other pieces that fill in when something drops or when it's not as good. That's almost impossible to do with, like, two people, right? And so I have enough freedom to make choices and do weird things. We do segments that are not straight what you'd expect out of, like, a sports show. But I try to stay within what makes sense for a show where my co-host is across the country and my producer's across the country and I'm here. We're not in a room together. We don't have a bunch of characters that people recognize. Um, we're not, we don't have a TV element that's visual. You don't have the element of nonverbal communication. Yeah. yeah. Break that down for me. For someone who's listening and going, oh, well, you know, you're ESPN. They don't. They might not realize you're not in yeah. the the same room, and you had multiple co-hosts that were kind of oh, positioned yeah. about the country. The trifecta at yeah. times was three different places plus a producer in Connecticut. Yeah. So, so how difficult is that to navigate? Um, I think if you have a good rapport and chemistry with the person, it's not tough. Um, Fitz, my co-host, Spain and Fitz. Uh, I think we've got a good chemistry and rapport so we can bounce off each other. We actually had cameras set up on our computers to look at each other for a while, and we haven't really used them as much because we don't really feel like we need them. Um, It does, I think, it is a better product when we're together, inevitably. But nobody seems to notice. Someone the other day was like, we were apart. They knew we were apart for a week for something else, and the person was like, you guys haven't been together in forever. I'm like, we're never together. You just think we are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm in the studio in my house in Chicago, and he's in Connecticut with our producer and board op. So at least there's it, it helps that they're in the same room versus I've done ones with my old co-host, Izzy, was in Miami. Our producer was in Connecticut, and I was in Chicago. Jeez. Uh, the trifecta was me in Chicago, Jane in Connecticut, Kate in New York usually. Um, but it's about it's about – cadence and understanding how someone operates right i like to jump in with quick asides and jokes and then pull back and let you finish so if you think when i jump in you're done and you just stop then and there's awkward pauses right so that needs to be established is i'm gonna jump in i'm gonna make a joke at your expense i'm jump back out and let you finish um so i mean it's it's always better to be in person but um a couple years ago i decided that i was gonna make decisions in my life based on what would actually make me happier not on what would make me richer or more famous because I don't think that's the same thing. That's a hard that's a hard lesson to learn. Right. What what drove that? Well, part of it was I saw colleagues who were out in Connecticut who had significant others in other places and who every chance they got it would be like 
all right, I have three days off vacation, and they would fly somewhere immediately. They would be available every second for any job because where they live is just that company. Um, and I would see people who kept taking bigger jobs for more money but not enjoying them as much. And for me, I work really hard and I work a lot, but when I'm done, I have all my friends and family are in this are in this area. I have my teams. Like that was part of it too was I'm going to work in sports and I'm going to go to my teams. I don't want to be that person that everybody becomes where they say, "Oh, well when you've been in the business long enough, you're just not really a fan the same way anymore." I'm that person now. Are you? See, um, I'm uh, there, a I have a couple of fan. exceptions. I'm a changed fan. I view things differently, but I am no less I mean, Cubs World Series, I'm bawling and crying and it's hitting me in every single feel. Blackhawks went like you know my teams mean a lot to me still I'm a massive fan of my teams even as someone in the industry I am not the person who's lost that altogether like I kind of would joke with the guys at ESPN 1000 because they talk trash about the tailgating at Soldier Field and I'd be like when was the last time you were at a game and it'd be like eight or nine years I'm like you don't even know you're not even there the, so, be, the be, being embedded with the Bears for as long as I was so I was. I started, what, 2003, and then I guess I technically stopped covering the beat every day in 2010 or 2011. It was just gone. Like, my whole Bears thing. Yeah, it does. Now, I do make up for it in other ways. I am a stupid DePaul fan, and pretty much anyone who's a DePaul fan at this point is stupid. I was going to say... How has, is it even possible to be a fan of that? It hasn't been great. It has. It really hasn't. But that's my alma mater. That's where I teach. That's like it's trying. The, that's like trying to go oppo. That's like basically. You're right. Let me see the thing that's least likely and easy to be a fan of. You're you're absolutely right, and I deal with it in a lot of weird ways. Like I used to doing the even doing the games, I would get so frustrated after losses that I would go home and bake cookies <laughs> because I needed I needed to relax and I needed something good to come out of the night so there'd be some nice warm cookies at the end of a lot of DePaul losses I'm still pretty crazy about DePaul I I would say I'm fairly crazy about the White Sox although I cried when they won the World Series like I bawled like I I bawled I had a little bottle of Vuv and I straight up to me is one of those things that's always crazy somebody wins every year it's not Haley's Comet. It's not something that's so rare. I know your team doesn't win every year, but that's why I think it's so funny to me even when I have these emotions to know that a team wins every single year, but when it's your team, it matters as much as no, it does. No, but for our two baseball well, teams. For, I mean, for the Cubs, of course. And it had been 88 years for the White right. Sox. So. Right. And, like, to be a part of something. When I was – so I was at every game of the World Series, and what was great was all the home ones, I got to balance being a fan and covering it. So I would do pregame and postgame for Sports Center and get to be the voice of Chicago and then go in and be a fan and sit in a regular seat with my husband. That's dope. And then in Cleveland, we had already gotten these awesome suites through a friend that were it was still like 700 800 a game, but that was like 1500 for a standing room. So 800 <laughs> for a suite where you got all you can dr- eat and drink. So we drove out to Cleveland, we came back, we drove back out for 6 and 7 and I got to be a fan and you know, I'm sitting there as Raja Davis hits the homer and it looks like we're going to blow it. And I'm thinking to myself, of all of the worst things that ever happened to Cubs fans, who are the most tortured fan base in the history of sports, 
this would be the worst, and I would become one of those people that is a part of the story of the worst things that have ever happened to the saddest team in the history. I'm like, how am I going to have to be bearing witness to yet another of the saddest things that have ever happened to the saddest team? In a tragic way. It would have been tragic. That's what I'm saying. It would have been the worst one yet. (laughs) It would be worse than Bartman. It would be worse than the Black Cat. It would be worse than every curse that's ever happened. Game seven, when you've got a lead like that with stupid freaking Araldus Chapman, who I didn't even want on the team, to Raja Davis, I would have been distraught. And so that there was a part of me that um, also in writing all the stories I did that year and in doing all the all the reporting I did, it just built it up even more for me to understand how lucky those of us who were fans and got to attend and got to witness it were because of all the people that came before that never that never made it. Right. And so you're hearing about all the people who drove out and listened on a radio with their with their dad's gravestone or who, you know, stuff like that. And that's when you're like, OK, it doesn't matter that it happens every year. This didn't happen every year. This hasn't happened in 108, and it's like it means something. And so I'm I'm really glad I can still be that person, and I don't want to be in an industry where I keep taking money and fame. I lose my connection to my teams, and I'm not happy. I don't go in and think I'm lucky to do this. I go in and think, oh, I don't want stuff like, you know, the get up. I wasn't like – I wasn't in the running necessarily because before I could have even gotten there, if, when they asked me about it, I said no. I don't want to live in New York and I don't want to go to bed at 8 p.m. every night and wake up at 2. I don't that's not that would not make me happy, even if you paid me millions of dollars. So so even though it's maybe less prestige and less money, that that added value of being able to go see the Blackhawks or the yeah. Bulls or go see the Cubs on a regular basis was worth it to yeah, you. And see my friends and see my family all the time and be done with work when I'm done. I mean, I work if I do Around the Horn, which I did today, I don't have my show tonight. That's why I'm here. But if I did, when I do Around the Horn, I start with a 9.30 call. I eat breakfast. I go to makeup. I do the show. I'm done around 2.30. I have one hour to get home, eat lunch, get to my radio by 3.30. 3.30 to 8, I'm done at 8. So now I've worked from 9.30 in the morning till mm. 8 p.m. with one hour to get home and eat lunch. I don't do that every day. I only do it twice a week. But then I'm done. Then I'm done, and I'm home in and my studio. And you're in Chicago, yeah. And I am eat dinner with my husband after my show last night, 8 p.m. We walk the dogs down the street. We go out to dinner. It's a late dinner outside. We enjoy the summer. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I can work as many hours as I do and as weird of hours as I do and then snap my fingers and I'm done. I'm not in Bristol where all my friends are across the country. I'm not, I can see my parents on a random night in the middle of the week if they're willing to do a late dinner. Um, and that, to me, like... I don't know. It's it's probably in some ways naive about the length of this industry and how much time I have to be in it. It's probably a little conceited to say, I f- think I'll find something to do. If people say, even though we never liked you because you're hot, you're still old now and so we don't want you on TV. And I'll be like, shit, that's why I was trying to write and do radio so that you couldn't just kick me out as soon as I got old. But um, if that happens and I think... Okay, I could go do TV and talk about other issues. I could keep writing, and that's my hope. And I don't know, maybe that's naive, but I don't want to do the thing where I push, 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 and then I'm 50, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I have all this money, but now all my friends have a bunch of kids. Nobody does anything anymore. You know what I mean? I like to do everything now so that I don't look back and say, oh, that was a good time for me to have been hanging with my friends and traveling and I think that you've got it right. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a producer over at Channel 9. And we were talking about this yesterday. It used to be, and I'm a, I'm a bit of a planner. Like, I'm big into, here's what I want to do in 
two years and five years okay. and ten years. I'm that guy. I'm a control freak now. I'm less of a long-term thinker. Well, the thing is, is that I think that you're right. The way that the industry is changing, the way the technology is changing, I think that having a five-year plan is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Like, the more I think about it, it's like, it's really crazy. And I, Mike Hall had been on the podcast a few episodes ago, and he said, when I was working at ESPN, there was no Big Ten Network. I never knew that I was going to be able to come back home and, Same with and do this. my friend Bill. He was working out in Connecticut, wanted to move back to this area, came to work for Big Ten Network. It gave him the the job he wanted in the place he wanted that before that he never would have known existed. Yep. I mean, there for me, there is a, a, a long-term plan for there's something outside of the industry that right. I want to do. And I, I know that when I'm done with the industry or the industry is done with me, <laughs> right. I'll be in a position to do that. But – Trying to project, which has been a big portion of my career, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. I don't think you can do that anymore. I, I think that if you're looking more than two years out on anything in this business, you're insane. Agreed. I think some things will remain because the industry doesn't turn over that fast. I think TV is one of them, right? We do know that a la carte is changing things and streaming is changing things and digital is changing things. But I don't think there's a time in the near future where TV's just gone. Right. The way we watch it, sure. And there will be way more competition and there might not be as much money in it and you might not have the same sponsorships for just straight terrestrial TV as you would have before. But it'll still be there, right? And so I think that stuff you can depend on because otherwise you can also scare yourself out of doing anything. Oh, this isn't even exist anymore. I don't even know what's going to happen. And I'm going to, you know, get off my lawn. Um, so I think you have to be able to adapt and then expect some things to remain so that you don't totally freak out. By the way, can I just tell you that I absolutely adore your husband? <coughs> I I adore him. I I just think that he's great. So do I. What a coincidence. Well, I don't I didn't want to marry him. But 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 Too I late, taken, yeah, he is already for. taken. But he <laughs> but he is great. How your relationship with him did it help that he was kind of around the business? Yes. So much so. Um, yeah, when I met him, he'd been working for StubHub for a number of years, and he had the Heckler, which is, you know, sort of like the Chicago Onion. It used to be in print, and at one point had something like 60,000 subscribers or, or, like, prints for every edition. Uh, now it's just a website. But um, he knew people in town. And so I grew up in a suburb. I never lived in Chicago other than the seven months right after college before I moved to L.A., so I was in L.A. for the first six years of, like, being an adult. So I came back for my first sports job, and I knew all the teams and the general media, but I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any of the people that worked anywhere. I had no connections to anyone. So I actually met him at a Blackhawks charity event that I was covering for Mouthpiece Sports, and he was there via connections to, like, the Heckler or StubHub or something. And so when we started dating, he actually knew a lot of people around town that I, you know, Rick Tellender, who I know from high school because his daughter went to high school with me, had written one of the first stories about the heckler in the Chicago Tribune. He was friends with all these WGN people and different newspaper writers because they had written about the heckler or he had written stuff about them or interviewed them. And so he was super helpful in helping me feel more comfortable and getting to know the people around town that I needed to know. Um, and then also his... Connection to sports means that we can do a lot of things together when we have free time that I would want to do anyway. I dated people before him that weren't sports fans, and I was always like, oh, it's not the end of the world. But the way my life is now, it would be really hard um, to be with someone that wasn't in wanting to go 
to Blackhawks and Bulls and Cubs and everything else and talk about it. We don't debate sports at all. We do not sit at home and fight over you Darvish's contract or something. <laughs> um, but we, but, but, and, and he, he's like one of the people I mentioned earlier who was watching sports from a very young age with his dad and his grandpa, every detail. He can remember some foul ball he caught at the Brewers game when he was seven and who hit it. He can remember, and I don't have that. I didn't grow up with that. I can remember the couple games I went to. I went to one when I was 16. I went to one with my friend. Like, I, you know, I, I can remember the very few moments of sports that my life was connected to with my parents growing up, but there were so few. Like, they weren't into it. So he remembers... I'll, I'll sometimes be writing a story and I'll like yell in the other room. I'm like, all right, I need an '80s baseball player that was known for flying off the handle, and he'll like yell a name in. I'll Google it. I'm like, perfect, because I'll be like, this is the analogy I want to make, but I can't come up with the name. Um, and that's another thing. When I started, I was really, I did not want to do radio because I thought people would call in and be like, who had the most home runs in 1989? And I'd be like, well, I don't know. Or they'd be like, what happened? And then I'd be like, I don't know. And I realized later that. There are people who are that person. For sure. And there are people that are me. And sometimes the people who know all that stuff are not interesting. And I have had an interesting life and done interesting things and did a bunch of other stuff before I ever got to sports that I think actually makes me have interesting insight into sports because I didn't just grow up listening to sports radio my whole life, knowing that's what I wanted to do and cultivating zero other aspects of myself. Now, some people who have done that are fantastic at what they do. But there are others that just because you can pull stats out of your ass doesn't mean you, you make them interesting for anyone to listen to. And so when I stopped putting so much pressure on myself to have to be that plus who I am, it just got a lot easier. And so I just accept that, you know, I'm going to know a whole bunch of stuff that my husband doesn't know. He's in a whole, whole bunch of stuff that I don't know. And we enjoy meeting in the middle on, on some stuff. How do you handle being a role model for a new generation of personality? Um, I really love hearing from especially dads with daughters that are like, I have my daughter listening to your podcast or reading your stuff or whatever, um, or even hearing from the girls themselves. A couple times there's a teacher who must be a fan of mine because I don't know how else. Uh, I've gotten letters from a bunch of students from a class at New Trier, and it's all girls in the class that write me about what they want to do. Um, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's, I don't want to sound like a jerk. Um, it's sort of effortless in that the things that I say I mean, you know what I mean? Like You're not trying to I'm, do I'm, anything. Yeah. You're just being you. Right. And by being you, you offer them an uh, an alternative. Right. Is that fair? Yes, for sure. Yes. And that and that, like I said before, it was sort of a choice to decide that I wanted to talk about things that I think are meaningful in the industry. Um, and it sort of wasn't a choice because it would have been so disingenuous for me to continue to play along with stuff that I disagreed with that I couldn't have really done it very well. Um, you know, even just silly stuff like turning my mic on and reminding the guys when they say someone throws like a girl, oh, Jenny Finch, right? Or, you know, if their only conversation about women is either she's hot or she's lost her fastball, right? That that's often is when women come up for anything. Um, so... Being around that, it's my natural way to just gently, even my own co-host Jason, who's awesome and totally forward thinking on stuff, his brain works so that when he makes an analogy, he always says hockey guy or baseball guy, right? His, his, his imaginary person is always this guy, hockey guy. 
So after he said it a bunch of times, with well, you know, baseball guy's always going to care about the way the game's played, whatever. I was like, I'm worried that your imaginary land full of people is going to die off because there's no women there. Guys. There's no one to procreate with. <laughs> and he was like, all right, I get your point. And I was like, just, you know, every once in a while you could hockey gal. Or, right? No, that's and fair. Like, that's, like, I, I never thought about it until yeah. you just said it. And he's like, well, usually I'm saying that they're an idiot and there's just more of us. I'm like, that's true. But we do have idiotic women listening and they want to be represented. Um, no, but just stuff like that that's so simple that if you are someone who's like, PC is dumb. Like, you hate to hear something as simple as that. And if you're not, you're like, that's a simple thing that when I was listening to sports radio for almost my whole life, I did not feel invited. Hmm. If you are never mentioned, unless it's about whether you're hot or not, and by by you, I mean just women in general, then you don't feel like you're invited. So it's a simple thing to just say, all the guys and gals out there that are super into the Cubs, great news, instead of all you guys out there. It's just, it's just so easy. Why not do it? And so stuff like that that's so simple or moments that are so simple like that, that comes naturally to me, and I know they annoy some people, but I would rather have people who are listening and show that to their daughter or moms and daughters who, who bond over that, have it make a difference for them growing up. Because the guy who's really pissed that I just said that is probably not going to ever change, and they're probably not going to like me much anyway. You know what I mean? So, like, if I lose that extreme that doesn't even think I should be working in the business because I'm a woman. That's not that terrible. It's not that big of a loss. I would much rather feel like there's – and I've had girls write me that are like, I want to do what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, my God, if there had been a me or any number of – there's so many more women now. But if there had been us when I was growing up, maybe I would have thought, oh, my God, I could interview Michael Jordan. I could – you know what I'm saying? Like, I could work for the Bulls. And it, my whole life would have been different. One more thing. What was it like to win the Peabody? Uh, surreal. Like, I, I have to say that Brad Burke, who was the guy who came up with the concept, like, I, I think of him as, like, the real winner, and then I think, like, just auxiliary, like, smaller trophies nearby. You had um, to sit there. But and... it was our story. <laughs> and it was our insight uh, that helped put it together, too, when we got there and, and uh, talking with him about what he should include and stuff like that. But, um... It felt like I was a part of something bigger because it was me too. It was Leslie Jones on Twitter. It was us doing that. It was Lindy West on NPR talking about her trolls. It was this movement of um, of standing up and saying that this is how it is and it can't be this way anymore um, and being recognized for that. I think – I think there's so much more that needs to be done in practic practical every day, but it starts with people who matter recognizing a problem, validating it, and then everybody else around trying to help. And that I think that particular more than meme piece, a lot of people who were already sympathetic and on our side didn't really get it until they saw it. And unfortunately part of that was that it was the men getting emotional. And we sometimes don't want to listen to women when they say, this is what's happening to me. But instead of us saying it, it was men that became emotional about it. And watching their vulnerability, I think, moved people in a way that if Julie and I had just sat up there and said, this is what we're getting said to us, it makes us sad, people wouldn't have reacted the same. And so that's both unfortunate, but also part of the reason why it worked. So a lot of people then after that were like, okay, we get it now. It's much more serious than we ever thought. Thank you for this. This was exactly like I thought this would be great, and I've not—I <laughs> was not disappointed at all. So thanks for thanks doing this. Thanks for having this. me. How fun was that? 
I had a wonderful time talking with Sarah Spain, and it was cool. Like, it was a good vibe in the studio, and we just got to kind of hang out and talk about the business. And I I don't know why, but I wasn't expecting her to say Eddie Murphy. I don't know why. I Maybe that's some profiling on my part that I I was expecting her to say, like, Chris Farley or – I, I don't know. It, I, I was shocked that that was her go-to, but I completely get it. I totally understand it, and I, I think that it's great that that was her choice for Saturday Night Live character. I also think there was some really important stuff about how to communicate displeasure with things that you are seeing in front of you, how to go about it, how to develop your own voice, and then use that voice for good. I'm really glad that she agreed to do it, that she was willing to even take it to the higher-ups at ESPN to see if they would allow it. And I'm so happy that we got the chance to talk because she was on the hit list. She was on the list of people that I really wanted to have on the podcast. So shout-out to her. She does a tremendous job with everything she does over at ESPN. She's just a lot of fun to, to talk with and has a lot to say, which is appreciated. I know the podcast is going a little long, a little longer than usual, but the conversation with Sarah was so good, I just kept it rolling. But I did promise you emails, and here are your emails. You can email the podcast at houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. Let's take a look here. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. This is from Matt. He says, for years, the score lineup has gone through changes. You're one of, if not the best hosts at the station. I always wonder why you haven't gotten on one of the standard time slots. Is it because you prefer the freedom of the nights allows you, as I know you have a lot of stuff going on. Thanks. That's from Matt. Here's the thing. Yes, I do enjoy the freedom of doing the nighttime show that it allows me to do other things, but I will say that those things develop as a byproduct of my schedule that because I was on at night and because I felt like there was other stuff that I could do that I branched out and I've been given a lot of opportunity to branch out early on in my career contractually that didn't, it didn't have to be allowed, but Mitch Rosen allowed me to do it. And I appreciate him for that. I'll I'll always appreciate him for that. Now I have some of that stuff written into my contract that I can do other things and do other stuff. I also, I push back a little bit about the idea of the standard time slot. And I'm using air quotes right now. I've always been bothered by people who think my career is somehow lesser because I'm on at night. Um, I don't think it's fair to, to me. And I don't think it's fair to the people who produce and work on my show. I take a lot of pride in the fact that people who've worked on my show, just about every executive producer that I've had since I've been at the score has been promoted and they've gotten what is maybe an easier time slot just because the way the world works. But I take a lot of pride in the fact that we're asked to do more with less at night. We don't have the type of funding that other shows have a lot of times over the last few years, I've it's all it's gone down to just one producer, one full-time producer. Now that's Herb Lawrence, but it used to be Joe Ostrowski 
for a long time. And seeing those guys grow and develop is uh, a lot of fun. If the right opportunity came along, I would take it. But there haven't been those right opportunities for me to move up. And honestly, one of the things I wonder about now is whether or not I even want a partner. And I've struggled with that for a really long time. And if you go back and listen to the episode with Dan Zampillo, you can hear us kind of joking about that. I, It might be a failing in my own personality. I'm not sure. But I know that I can always depend on me. And I'd rather not depend on someone else and then be let down if they don't live up to what are sometimes my ridiculous standards about how the business goes and that sort of thing. But I do take some offense to the idea that the nighttime show is lesser. Um, And again, maybe that's a failing in me too. But we try to do creative stuff, and my bosses have given me a lot of freedom, not just to do other things, but to do a show that is different than traditional what you would call drive time. By the way, drive time in radio still goes through 7 p.m. And my 6 o'clock hour is usually very highly rated. And it's something that I take a lot of pride in, that people that are driving home at 6 o'clock will listen to the show. So I appreciate the question, Matt. I, I get asked it more, and I'm not trying to take it out on you, Matt, but I get asked it a lot, and, and it's it's sometimes bothersome when I don't feel like the show that I do do <laughs> gets enough respect. It is what it is, and I'm always looking for opportunities to better and challenge myself. And that's why I've been doing a lot of TV. It's one of the reasons why I branched out and wanted to do a podcast. But the nighttime show for me right now is where it's at. One more thing on this. I did a seven-week stint hosting the midday show with Spiegel when Mac had gone away. And after that seven weeks was up, I went back, and Joe Strowski was EP of the nighttime show, and I was like, I won't leave here again. I didn't like having to come back and almost restart the nighttime show. So I'll fill in occasionally on other shows, but I don't want long tenures on other shows unless it's a full-time tenure. On it, unless my name is actually on the show. I don't want to do that because I don't think it's fair to the listener that tunes in at 6 o'clock for me to be there and I'm not there outside of our play-by-play obligations. I don't think that that's fair to do to the listener. And, and after that seven weeks, I felt pretty crappy about doing that to the nighttime show because they had rotating hosts for those seven weeks that I was doing middays. That's tough on producers. I think that's tough on the listener 
you get into your routine, and then it's just totally turned upside down. I didn't know when I was going to go back to the nighttime show. They didn't know when I was going to go back to the nighttime show. So I would prefer that unless there's some sort of dire emergency that I stay where I'm at until a time comes where my name goes on a show in another time slot. Fair? Okay. How about this one from Ryan? Ryan says, Lawrence, loving the podcast. Lynn was great. Brings back my many personal memories from my brief stint as a promotions intern at XRT in the summer of 99. I would love to see if you can land Paula Ferris. That would be amazing. Would love to hear Sports Sunday stories and just get her perspective on Chicago sports since she's all national now. This one is probably too soon, but Brian Hanley would be a great guest too. I'm sure Dust needs to settle first, but his goodbye a couple weeks ago really got to me. Would you ever consider Jay Hood or anyone across the dial, or is that an ESPN thing where you won't allow them to? Looking forward to future podcasts. Some Ryan. See, Ryan, if you made it through this podcast, you already know the answer to the question. There are a lot of people across the aisle that I have a good relationship. And next week you'll hear another one. Not that it's technically 1,000, but it's another ESPN person. And you'll, you'll be able to hear that. But Jeff Dickerson was on my list of people that I wanted to get on the podcast, but he's been going through some stuff, which he's been transparent about. And I'm, I'm not here to speak about his business, but he's someone that I absolutely adore and I would love to have him on. I'd love to have Jonathan on. I, I'm trying to figure out which will happen first, whether Jonathan's on my podcast or I'm on Jonathan's podcast. The Under the Hood podcast is also really good. You should check it out. He gets a lot of cool guests on, and I check it out, and I'm like, fuck. Did I just say that on the podcast? I did. Sarah already cursed, so this one I can just be dirty. Um, there are a lot of people he'll get that I, I'm like, man, I really wanted that person. Like, I want to sit, sit down with Scoop, and Jonathan's already had him on the podcast. But there's so much I want to talk to Scoop about. Anyway, yes, that is uh, definitely on the list. I'll... I would love to have Brian on the podcast for a lot of different reasons. And he knows that he's actually a listener of the podcast. And one of the things he told me before he left is how much he liked the house of L, which meant a lot to me because when I started out, when I was a producer, I was cocky and, and Brian was one of the people that kind of said, you need to do a better job of getting your point across. You need to change tone. You need to, you have good ideas, but you need to do a better job of getting them across. And that I hadn't earned some of the arrogance that I was walking around the station with. So I've always appreciated Brian for that. It, as I said in the tweet, he put me on the right path. And I will be forever grateful for him, to him for that. So yes, he is always welcome on this podcast. And even if he just wants to talk about the nineties, I would be down for an hour of Brian Hanley. As far as Paula Ferris goes, that's a really interesting suggestion. We had a lot of fun and Paula was instrumental. Her and Peggy Kaczynski were instrumental in my transition from radio to television. 
they basically were like, when I got to Channel 5, I had been doing a segment where I was teaching Zoraida Sambolin about football on Sunday mornings. Like, that was the segment. And I actually thought it was pretty good. Like, we had a lot of fun. It was a five-minute segment or whatever. And I thought it was dope. And then they were like, can you read a teleprompter? And I'm like, sure, I can read a teleprompter. But it was Peggy and Paula who went out of their way to help me make that transition easier. Paula is one of my favorite people. We joke about her running for office someday because I think that she'd be an incredible candidate. And I told her that I would love to be on her campaign when she runs. So, yeah, she's on the list. So is Rebecca Harlow. Rebecca and I, I, I probably no diss to anyone else because I loved working with Mike Adamley when, when I was over at Channel 5. Rebecca and I probably had the best time working together on Sports Sunday. So she's on the list, but with her being the sideline reporter for the Knicks, like trying to match up her schedule to get her in studio is really difficult. If worse comes to worse, I'm going to get her on the phone and, and we're going to have a good time. So, yeah, hopefully that answers all your questions, Ryan. Look at me being all long-winded and whatnot. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Guess I got to put the explicit thing on this week's podcast too, huh? Well, that'll do it for me. Thanks for listening. Next week's guest, I can tell you I've already done the interview, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. Thanks to everyone who listened to this week's episode. Shout out to Sarah Spain. Tremendous guest with a lot of perspective. Glad that we were able to to connect and, and make it work. Shout out to Heckler Brad, her husband. It's a good man right there. Real good man. Thanks for listening this week. Next week, we get it cracking again. I appreciate the support. If you want to email us, houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. Have a great week.